if you would, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31. We'll be looking at four concluding details to the book of Deuteronomy. And we'll jump right in to the verses 1 to 8. And this first concluding detail is that uh, Moses publicly commissions Joshua in the sight of all Israel. Notice with me in verse 1. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And what we see is a commission to Joshua. But before he gets to commissioning Joshua himself, he's going to give a commission really to the people of Israel. Moses really is a dying man speaking to dying men. He is in the last days of his life here. He knows that his time is short, and he is giving this final uh, uh, commission to the people of Israel. And he starts off with a concern in verse 2. Notice he says, And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. You can imagine the concern here. This is Moses. This is the Moses who split the Red Sea. This is Moses who, in their minds, brought the plagues. This is Moses who led them out of the wilderness. This is Moses who struck the rock and water came out. This is Moses who lifted up the serpent and, and people were healed. This is Moses who, who uh, you know, brought down manna in their eyes, right? He is the one who mediated all these things. Where are they going to be without Moses? They're losing someone important. What are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to continue on in the mission that God has given them without their precious great leader, Moses? You can imagine the concern. We also have many concerns. But the way we go about those concerns shouldn't be to rustle up our own strength, but it's to rely on the Lord. And the Lord gives certain promises in verses 3 to 5 that are meant to address these concerns. It's a real concern. But we see the promises that the Lord gives in verses 3 through 5. You'll notice that it will say repeatedly, the Lord will do this, or he will do this. And he gives these promises. Read with me. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you, so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head, as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, into their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. What's fascinating is that these promises address the concern. The concern was, we're losing Moses. God's response is essentially, it was never about Moses. It was about the Lord. It's the Lord who did the work. It wasn't Moses. Moses is a man. God can work through Moses, or he can work through Joshua. And so he is addressing their concern. Don't put your faith in men. Put your faith in the Lord. He's the one who's going to accomplish everything anyway. And he also says that he will give them Joshua. So he will um, give them someone who will lead them over. But we see the Lord's promises that it will be the Lord himself who will act and do it. I think it's funny that, well, maybe not funny, but disheartening, I guess. Their, their concerns, their circumstances led them to question what they were going to do. I think the same is true for us. We get into concerns, we get into circumstances, and we think, 
Is the Lord going to change in the way that he deals with us? Is the Lord going to be the same? Because what we do is we're, we're finite, we're changeable, we're malleable, and we project all that upon God, and we think, well, if our circumstances are going to change, if we get into difficulties, then maybe God is going to be dealing with us differently. But God says, no, I'm the same, regardless of the circumstances. And so the Lord is going to give them uh, their enemies over to them. Notice that he says in verse 4, and the Lord will do to them, the, the enemies in Canaan, as he did to Sihon and Og. They had already um, had this military victory over Sihon and Og under Moses, and now God says it doesn't matter whether it's Moses or Joshua, you're going to have military victory in the land of Canaan because it's the Lord's actions. So the Lord is the same regardless. So he starts with the concern. He gives them these promises. And then based on these promises, he gives them a command. And the first part of 6a, or the 6a, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. And so he has this command for them. But it's not... Be strong and courageous because you're a mighty nation. It's not be strong and courageous because you're really numerous. Because what was the reality of the situation? If you looked at Canaan, what advantages did they have from a human perspective? They had walled cities. They had chariots. They had more people. They were bigger in stature than the Israelites. Remember that when the 12 spies went to uh, spy out the land of Canaan beforehand, 40 years earlier, what did they say? We were like grasshoppers in their eyes. They're big. We're little. And so, oh, you can think of another one. They had lived there their whole lives. They knew the geography. They knew the topography. They knew all the natural features of the land. They knew what routes to take and what routes not to take. They had every single advantage, humanly speaking, against the Israelites. And so, this command is not be strong and courageous as if you can really do something yourself. But we see the reason or the motivation or the ability to uh, be true to this command in the second part of verse 6. Notice that it says, for, right? That always gives you some kind of support or reason. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. They could be strong. They could be courageous to go into Canaan to obey the Lord, to defeat those nations, because the Lord was going to be with them. He would promise them his presence and that he would not forsake them. Now, we might say, well, that's all well and good. That's for Israel. Be strong and courageous, Israel, because the Lord's going to be with you to go and defeat those nations. And that is the context. But what's cool is as you take this through Scripture, this theme of the Lord being with his covenant people goes from here all the way to the end of the Bible. And so what I'd like for you to do is follow me on this kind of trek of following this theme of being strong and courageous for it is the Lord who goes with you. A, a psalm that everyone knows and loves is Psalm 23, 1 to 4. I want you to notice in each of these passages this theme of either don't be afraid for the Lord is with you, be strong for the Lord is with you. So notice Psalm 23, 1 to 4. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, notice this, I will fear no evil. And what is the reason given? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So this theme could be applicable to David in his particular circumstances, even though he wasn't Joshua going into the land to defeat the, the Canaanites. But he could apply it here. In, in, in the idea of going through the valley of the shadow of death, he could fear no evil. For the same purpose, you are with me. Isaiah 41, 9 through 10. Isaiah chapter 40 is kind of a hinge in the book of Isaiah. Up until that point, he's prophesying really mostly judgment and the fact that they're going to be exiled to Babylon. And then in chapter 40, it's looking forward and saying, there will be a time, though, when I will bring you back. And it's the, the book of comfort after chapter 40. And so in Isaiah 41, he's encouraging Israel to no longer be afraid once they have received this judgment. Isaiah 41, 9 through 10, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. It certainly seemed like it, right? They were in Babylon. They had the temple destroyed. Everything was in disarray. And yet, he says, I have chosen you and not cast you off. He has the command, fear not. And again, we have a, a result or a purpose. Why, why should you not be afraid? For I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. As we go into the New Testament, what does the name Emmanuel mean? God with us. That's what George has been going through. And you see in the book of Matthew, right, the bookends, where it starts off with saying he's Emmanuel, which means God with us. But then as you come down to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we call that the Great Commission. What do we have? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so that theme, that concept of God's presence with us should encourage us to go and make disciples. It's his authority, right? We can go in boldness because he is with us. And then if you would turn to Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, because this quotes our passage in Deuteronomy 31. And what's fascinating is it, it applies it to a very specific life situation. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. It reads, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Why should you do that? Notice the four. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So what's cool is this passage 
takes Deuteronomy 31, the principle there that the Lord will never leave you, never forsake his covenant people, and applies it to even a situation of financial concern. Don't be concerned about getting all the money you can because God is enough. He's with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And you can just imagine how many other applications that you can take this to. And I know many of you are in really difficult spots. But we have the promise that the Lord is with his covenant people. And so if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're a part of the new covenant, then this is true, that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. He is with you, and so you don't need to be afraid. Now, one thing, though, is, does this mean that, well, whatever we go and do, the Lord is going to give us peace and prosperity and all that we do? No, of course not. But what I think it's dealing with is, in the situation of obeying the Lord, back in Deuteronomy 31, they were to go into the land. God had commanded them, go into the land, defeat these enemies. I will be with you so you can do that. In other places, it deals with their ability to obey the Lord. The way that you know that you can have the ability to obey the Lord is because he is with you. So I think it has that application. And then, as we come to the very end, I I believe I read this passage uh, last week, I think. But Revelation 21.3, as we get into the eternal state, we read this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And so, as we get to the eternal state, we have this perfect, eternal fellowship with the Lord, uh, his presence there with us. But again, I think um, many of us need this, this uh, encouragement that the Lord is with you and he does not leave you or forsake you. So Moses here in Deuteronomy 31 has got all Israel assembled there. And now he summons Joshua to his side, and it's as if all Israel is still there, and he calls Joshua up, and he now turns to him and gives him a commission. It's a commission to Joshua, but it's intentionally in front of everybody. And we read this in verses 7 through 8. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So he gives Joshua pretty much the same commission that he gave to Israel. Don't be afraid. I think it would probably be very scary for Joshua because he's filling in the footsteps of Moses. Moses did a lot of crazy things, but I'm just Joshua, right? But he tells Joshua, don't be afraid. The Lord is going to be with you. Um, Because again, it wasn't Moses who did anything. It was the Lord through him. And so the Lord can do the same things through Joshua. I think this uh, this public commissioning has uh, another purpose. 
You know, you'll notice that in world history, the most successful dynasties are ones where the reigning monarch, before he dies, names a successor, right? Because what that does is it keeps his generals and other relatives from fighting. Everyone, the whole nation can accept uh, a new king or a new emperor or a new ruler before the old one passes off the scene. Uh, you remember what happened to Alexander the Great, right? He, he conquered all this land, but then he died without a son. And so what happened? His land got divided, right, between his four generals, and there was all this fighting that went on. But what this allows is Moses to pass off the mantle to Joshua in front of everybody. And he is saying, look, I have all the confidence in, in Joshua. Um, and so, and he calls Israel to, to be faithful to Joshua as well. So we see this public commissioning of Joshua in verses 1 to 8. Really, I think what we can call this is a call to dependence upon the Lord. Do not fear, do not be afraid. It's the Lord who goes with you. And so it's a call to depend upon the Lord in all the circumstances, especially as you're going into Canaan to fight all these nations. But it's a call to dependence. And then we jump into the next concluding detail of the book of Deuteronomy in verses 9 through 13, in which Moses commands the reading of the law. Moses commands the reading of the law. So let, read with me, 9 through 13. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And so this was a repeated process. It was every seven years. And what's going on here is that in those ancient Near Eastern covenant treaties, those covenant documents, documents oftentimes the suzerain would stipulate that the vassal people had to pull out that covenant document and read it at regular intervals. And the point of it was, Remember whose authority you're under. Remember that you belong to this king. Remember that your loyalties are here. And also, remember all the stipulations. And so you can imagine that for a, a king in those days who had uh, control over other littler kings, big thing that he wants is money, right, and tribute. And so in the stipulations, there would be the vassal must pay this much tribute uh, at, at this interval, you know, per year. And when you read that, you are reminded that, oh yeah, I've got to pay that tribute. But for the Lord, he's wanting their love. He's wanting their loyalty. He is reminding them of their, their covenant with him. And this was every seven years. It was a renewed commitment to loyalty. And notice who this was required for. It was everyone. It says men, women and the little ones and the sojourner. It was everyone. 
And then notice what the purpose is for reading this law, this book of the law. You can find the purpose by the that statement, right? That they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. And so the purpose of this reading was that the people would fear the Lord. And that is the same as today. As we read God's word, what do we learn to do? We learn to fear the Lord. And as I was thinking through uh, this passage, and specifically this idea of fearing the Lord, um, I was finishing up my study for you know, the morning, and I went home uh, to eat lunch, and I got in the car, and I've only got you know, like a four-minute drive to, to our house, and I get in, and, and as I'm thinking about the fear of the Lord, I turn on the car, and I hear Alistair Begg preaching, and... Lo and behold, what is he preaching on? The fear of the Lord. Uh, and so it was very, you know, uh, coincidental, Jerry? Yeah, fate, luck, and chance. Anyways, it was... Um, but anyways, he was giving not as much a definition of the fear of the Lord, but he was saying, how do you know that you do fear the Lord? And you know you fear the Lord when you ask this question in the midst of your daily life, when you are going about your daily duties as you're thinking your thoughts, as you're saying your words, and as you're doing your actions. If before you do those things, you ask this question, then you know that you are fearing the Lord. And the question is, will Father approve? Will Father approve? And I thought that was convicting because it recognizes his authority. It recognizes the love that you have for him, that you want to uh, please him. And so you ask the question, will Father approve? And isn't that what the scriptures do? It teaches us what the Father approves of. Romans 12 tells us to not be conformed to the image of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that by testing you may know what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what the scriptures do. They allow us to know what God's will is. They allow us to know what he approves of. And that fits in perfectly with our passage. They are to read the law every seven years in its entirety so that they may know what the Father approves of. He had laid it out for them. I think there's also another part to this as well, the fear of the Lord. It's not just seeking what uh, he approves but it is also recognizing that he is powerful, right? Do not fear man, but fear the one who can toss your whole body and soul into hell, right? There is this fear of the Lord as well. And so he had this quote as well. He said, if you fear God, you will not fear anything else. If you neglect this, you will fear everything. If you have the fear of God, you won't fear man, you won't fear death, you won't fear any of these things. But if you do not have the fear of the Lord, you're going to have every other single fear trying to get at you. If you fear God, you will not fear anything else. But if you neglect this, you will fear everything. Uh, and so I was quite thankful uh, to the Lord that uh, Alistair Begg was preaching that day. But the purpose is to fear the Lord. And they were to do this every seven years, now, they would read the entirety of the law every seven years, but then you still had the Levites in all the towns, 
and they were meant to teach the law throughout the year, right? But here, every seven years, they came together corporately to renew their commitment to the Lord and to learn to fear him. So now then, as we move on to the third concluding detail of, of the book of Deuteronomy, we've just had this public commission of Israel and of Joshua, and we've had this, this um, reading of the law corporately, but now it turns privately, and we see in verses 14 to 23 that the Lord gives two private commissions. The Lord gives two private commissions, and the, the stage is set in verses 14 to 15. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And, Mo and Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. So Moses is about to pass off the scene. Like we said, he's probably only got a few more days left uh, before he goes up, up to Mount Nebo and, and dies. But what we'll see is that the Lord still has a task for him left to do. And so we see two commissions. First, we see the Lord commissioning Moses to do something in verses 16 to 22, and then he'll turn to Joshua. So let's look at the commission to Moses first in 16 through 22, and he starts it off with just a candid statement of the future. So read with me, 16 through 18. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. He's saying, in the future, Israel will turn away from me. Even after all that the Lord has done, he knows the heart of man, he knows the heart of Israel, he knows that they are going to rebel against him. And the temptation, obviously, would be that well, first off, you know that when Israel disobeyed, what would they receive? They would receive the covenant curses that they were promised. But the temptation would be for the generation that received all those curses to say, all this is happening because God was unfair to me. God is mean to me. God has neglected us. He's being unfair, right? That's the temptation. And God's response is, I'm not going to let them malign my name that way. I will set forward a witness to my righteousness, to my justice, to my compassion, and to my love. And so he commissions Moses to write a song. We see this in 19 through 22. Notice that it says, now therefore. So the song is in direct response to what Israel will do in the future. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. I think it's 
well, it's heartbreaking that whenever we get into good times, it's easy to forget the Lord. And here it's the same. You just think about, he's the one who brought them into the land. He's the one that's giving them the produce. He's the one that's giving them the rain. He's the one that's giving them the harvest and the crops. And they eat it and they are, have their fill. But instead of turning and thanking the Lord, saying, Lord, thank you for the ways that you've blessed me, they go after idols, things that are not God's. I think we do the same. And then we see the result of what's going to happen when you do that. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know that they are inclined for what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And so it was to be a witness. They would not be able to say, God has done me wrong. He is being unfair. But rather, God is right and just in all that he does. And what will, originally I was planning to do both uh, chapter 31 and chapter 32 this week, but I figured we would actually give uh, the song uh, a full week next week. So we'll look at, at the witness next week. But this was to give evidence to the Lord's righteousness and his justice. And so the problem is really not the Lord. The problem is our own sinfulness, and the problem is how we react to our circumstances. For Israel, first off, they sinned, and therefore they received the covenant curses, and the song will list out all of that. And then they would be responding sinfully by, um, by saying that God had done them wrong. So he gives this commission to Moses. And then he turns now, to Joshua in verse 23. And he gives him a charge, a commission, and a promise. The charge is much the same as we saw earlier. The Lord commissioned to Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous. There's the charge. Now, what is he actually supposed to do, the commission? For you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them, and then the promise, I will be with you. I think this is exactly what Joshua needed uh, in the passing of Moses and taking on the role to lead the people of Israel. He needed this charge, he needed this commission, he needed this promise. And this is right here in the private confines of the tent of meeting, just the Lord, Moses, and Joshua. And the Lord is personally giving him this encouragement that he would be with him. So he commissions Joshua. And then finally, as we come to the concluding detail of this section, we see that Moses records the law and the song of witness. And this is where it gets heartbreaking, as we've already seen it's heartbreaking, but we see this here. Verse 24, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears, and call heaven and earth 
to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. What we see here is really one of the effects of the word of God is that it is a witness, it is a testimony to the Lord's righteousness, and it is also a witness against us in our sinfulness. There is not a person who is going to stand before God and be able to accuse him of wrongdoing. Regardless of the circumstances that you have in this life, he is never wrong. He is always righteous and just in all that he does. And the scriptures lay all that out. The scripture The scriptures are a witness to God's righteousness. They are a witness to his faithfulness. You look at the Old Testament narrative. Time and time again, God shows forth his compassion to a rebellious people, and yet uh, he still is faithful to them. And we see it in the gospel as well. And so really what this is, is a call to witness. It is a call to witness the Lord. And so if we think back of what we've looked at, we've looked at really the first section, which was a call to dependence. We are called to depend upon the Lord in our circumstances and obeying the Lord. He is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He was that way for the Israelites, but it's also true for all those who are in covenant with him. That includes all of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a call to fear. We looked at that. And how do you learn this fear? It's by learning what the Father approves of. It's learning through His Word. It's learning His commands. It's learning His heart. It's learning to fear Him. And then also we have this call to witness. God is just and right in all He does. And so really we sin when we are bitter against God for our circumstances. But we know that God is not evil and vindictive. He has shown us his heart. He's demonstrated his love for us in the gospel. And we just think Christ, who is the very form of God, right? he existed in glory. He was king, and yet he humbled himself. He emptied himself to take on the form of humans, to take on flesh, to take on the form of a servant. He became like us in every way except sin. He felt pain, loss, sickness, and death. And as we were going through this morning in John chapter 13, He took on the role of a servant washing the feet of his disciples. The God of the universe, humbling himself to that point. But the humbling went past that. He took upon himself our infirmities. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His love compelled him to lay himself down to redeem us. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I asked this question, would anything except the greatest of love compel the Son of God to feel the full force of the Father's wrath so that he could call us brothers and not be ashamed? All of the scriptures are a witness or a testimony to the goodness of God. So depend upon him, for he is with you. Fear him, for he is worthy and stand in awe of his justice and his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time to read your word. Lord, we just pray that you would take these truths and challenge us, encourage us. 
Lord, may we not grow disheartened through fear of the future. May we know that you are with us, that you never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you that we have that promise secure for us in the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who learn to fear you. Lord, we will not learn to fear you if we are not in your word. So make us a people of the book. Make us a people who read your word and want to obey it and who see you as glorious. And then, Lord, I pray that we would witness, that we would um, understand that you are right and just in all your ways, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of our sinfulness. You are right and you are good. And you have shown us your goodness to us all throughout your word. So, Spirit, we ask that you would take this and apply it, make it real in our hearts and our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.